Um, if you can pray, that'd be awesome. Okay. Well, we can do that. Lord, uh, we just pray that you would break our hearts, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, uh, in the first section, verses 1 through 6, we have David's cry for mercy. Um, the cry for mercy uh, is summarized by the prayer of the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Um, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this is the pattern that, um, that prayers of confession, uh, prayers of repentance take throughout the scriptures. There is a plea for God to, um, to be attentive to and, and to, to consider the, um, the, the, the dire circumstance, the, um, the pain, the agony, the, um, the, the deadness, the filth, the pollution of the sinner, um, and, then, uh, and then express his, his pity um, in a surgical, attentive way that meets that sinner's particular need. This is the pattern that Daniel's prayer takes in Daniel 9. This is the pattern that um, the prayer of Nehemiah and the people takes um, right in the, in the middle of, of that book as well. Um, so, you know, David has done what we all tend to do in our flesh when there is an awareness of sin. We, we kind of scuttle around trying to, trying to cover up. Um, so David tries to get your, he, he brings Uriah home to try to make it, it looks like it's Uriah's child. When that doesn't work, he has Uriah um, taken out. And then he marries Bathsheba to make it look as if it's a legitimate um, pregnancy. And, and we tend to do the same thing in a thousand different ways. We, we minimize what we do. We, we point the finger at other people. We, we shift the blame. We, we rationalize and try to make it seem like it's, it's not so bad. Um, we have a thousand devices to try to, to cover things over for ourselves. Um, but, but God's aim with us is to, is to do with us what he did with David through Nathan. And sometimes he'll use brothers and sisters. Sometimes he'll do it directly through the work of his spirit. His aim is to, is to strip all that away and to, um, and to come face to face with us. And when that happens, when we, when we see ourselves um, in the presence of God, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, or like that publican did, um, that is what elicits from our hearts this, this cry for mercy. And so when we cry for mercy, when we cry out for mercy, we will appeal to God's own character. We will not plead extenuating circumstances. We will not plead that we're, we're a little better than the next guy. We will not plead um, that, well, if you take into account uh, the situation, it's, it's, really, not, uh, it's really, really not all that bad. Uh, we will not shift the blame. No, we will, we will appeal directly to, to God's character because we know that is our only hope. And that's what David does here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Um, so he's appealing to the love of God. He's not appealing to the, um, the, the smallness of his sin or to, or, or to the, um, 
uniqueness of his situation, he is appealing directly to the love of God. Now, it's good to, it's healthy to do with, with the Psalms what Isaac Watts did. You read them in, in the light of Jesus. And um, David's saying, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of the extent of your love, according to that, have mercy on me. And Paul tells us um, that he, you know, he, he cries out to God to help us to know the greatness of the extent of his love. Um, it's, it's so long that it stretches from before the beginning of time when God set his love on you to the farthest reaches of eternity where he'll be having fellowship with you. It's higher than the heavens are above the earth and it's deeper than the lowest pit of hell because that's how deep he had to go to extract you. And it's wider than the east is from the west because so far has he removed your sin from you by the power of his love. Uh, there is no limit to the love of God for you. And so that is what we appeal to when we ask him to have mercy on us as he observes the misery, the agony, the difficulty we've gotten ourselves into because of our own sin. And then he says, according to the multitude of your, your tender mercies. Um, it is beautiful to think about the multiplicity of God's tender mercies. God says that they're new every morning, book of Lamentations. And then um, in Romans 12, we're, we're told that in, in view of God's mercies, well, that means in light of all that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11, in light of the propitiation of Christ, um, where, where he absorbed the full shock of God's uh, wrath for, for our sin, in light of his redemption where he purchased us uh, for God with his blood, in light of his, his justification of us, pronouncing us righteous through the imputation of his righteousness to us, in light of his um, regenerating us, crucifying our old man on his cross and reoriginating us in his resurrection, in light of his sanctifying power by giving us his righteousness so that his own righteousness is is produced in us so that we express in our lives the righteousness of Jesus himself, Romans 8, verse 4. That's all his mercies, 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 mercies. So according to the multitude of your tender mercies, which are alone powerful enough to, to meet us in the, in, the, in the misery in which we find ourselves in, in our sin, which are able to extract us from our sin legally, um, practically, in every way imaginable, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, then he comes to his need. You know, and this is what the, you know, the, the people do throughout the, the ministry of Jesus. Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. I have a specific need I'm coming to you about. And so here's the specific need. It's the, the need is for the utter removal of sin. Uh, it can't be something partial. And that's why we can't handle it. You know, we can't scrub it away with deeds of penance, which is, it's not just a Roman Catholic thing. That's a tendency of our flesh. You know, we, we want to we try to scrub it away ourselves, but no partial cleansing will do. We need an utter, total, complete removal. Um, so he says, blot out my transgressions. That's an utter removal. You, you blot something out so that it cannot be seen. Uh, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's thorough. 
uh, leaving nothing unclean. Um, this was symbolized in the Old Testament by people cleansing themselves completely with water in order to be clean before God, or having the blood applied to the lobe of their ear and their thumb and their big toe, uh, representative of the, of the whole person. We need to be utterly and thoroughly cleansed. And he, then he says, and cleanse me from my sin, authoritatively, you as God. This is what all of the sacrifices were, were communicating. That God, you know, we can't do it, but God is the one who through his ordained means can authoritatively cleanse us. And this is what David is begging for. He needs an utter, a thorough, and authoritative removal, cleansing from sin. Why? And he's continuing his plea for mercy because he's recognizing the profound effects of his sin. First, he realizes it's, it's overwhelming. His sin is overwhelming. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Why is it so overwhelming for David? Because David was a man who walked with God. You know, you, you observe his life and he's, he's continually asking God for direction. He's consulting with the Urim and Thummim. Do I go to war? Do I not go to war? How should I... Um, uh, approach this situation? How should I approach that situation? Not only that, but the, the entire gamut of his emotional life was shared with God. All of his, all of his joys, his, his sorrows, his distresses, his anxieties, they're all shared with him and God. And so, so sin comes into the mix, and, and this man who's, who's been walking with God, whose aspiration is as the hymn uh, you know, that we just sang records it. He, he wants to walk with God, nothing between. And that's, that's, his, that's his, his custom. That's, um, that's his lifestyle. All of a sudden, sin comes in the way and there's something between. So David's been walking with God and all of a sudden, his sin is always before him because he's, he, he's, he's looking for God and yet this sin that he's committed is, is blocking his way. And... And it's overwhelming him. It's overpowering him. His life is draining away. His bones are crushed. The source of his life has been, has been blocked. He's, um, he, he's withering away to, to nothing. He's, he's growing old unnaturally in a spiritual sense. Um, he's, uh, he's wasting away. It's as if he's, he's been unplugged from, from his power source. Um, you know, somebody's shut off the circuit breaker and, and there's this, this death is, is creeping into, um, into his life. So it's overwhelming to him, uh, subjectively and, and objectively, he finds himself, um, justly condemned. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, near a, a near Eastern King is told that he's wrong and, um, these guys assume that if there if there's a woman, you just take her. That's what, that was a Abraham and Isaac's concern when when they were on their travels. You know these these kings they just they just take a beautiful woman, and it's easy to start thinking according to the pattern of the world. There's a beautiful woman, I'll just take her. You know, I have authority over the army. I'll take out her husband. But then the word of God comes to him through Nathan the prophet. God reminds him, No, I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the one who lifted you up. 
and I rule here. This is my people. This is my kingdom. Just as he did with Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the one who lifts people up. I'm the one who puts them down. I can, I can put over, you know, the, I, I can lift over all kings and over all the earth, the lowest of men, just because I want to. You're here at my discretion, David. And all of a sudden, David sees himself before the face of God. And he realizes, I- I've, I've done this against God. And again, the, the origin of David's sin is very familiar to us. It starts with our own adulterous hearts. We're not content. And, and David, God drives this home to David through Nathan. Look at everything I gave you. If that weren't enough, I would have given you more, but you were not content with me and with my provision. We have to look for more. And, and isn't this where, where, um, where we find ourselves um, committing adultery against God spiritually and striving with others? We, we cannot rest content with him himself as if he's not enough, as if he hasn't given us enough. And so we want more. And it causes all kinds of problems. And God comes to us and he says, I've given you enough. I'm enough for you. And I've provided you with plenty. And yet you've, you've reached out and you've grabbed for more. And this causes terrible consequences for yourself and for people around you. And so David agrees with God, which is what we do in confession. You're blameless, Lord. Your your judgment is just. Um, And I recognize that I stand condemned before you. So that's why I'm here, begging for mercy. And so, so David pleads that he's overwhelmed. He pleads that he's condemned. So, so this is a little counterintuitive for us because in our flesh, we want to say, well, I'm really not so bad. And, you know, the sin really wasn't so bad. No, David is pleading the greatness of his sin and the, and the profound evil effects that it has because, because he's looking for mercy. He, stir, he, he wants God's heart to be stirred to express that mercy that he is full of. So, Lord, look at how evil I am. Won't you have pity? Look at how overwhelmed I am by the heinousness of what I've done. I stand condemned, Lord. Won't you have mercy? That's how he pleads. That's the biblical logic. And then he he pleads the impossibility of his situation. I'm full of sin from the moment of conception. And from the moment of birth when I was born, I was... I was pervaded by sin. And yet, what you're looking for in me is something that doesn't grow naturally. It's like looking for flowers in a a chemical waste plant. You know, here I am pervaded by sin, and you're looking for truth in the inward parts. And wisdom in the hidden parts. Here I am. My folly is is spilling all over. Really, for for the nation to see eventually, as as hard as he tried to cover it up, and and then for the world to see. The the foolishness of not being content with God himself and what he's given. There's been been deep deceitfulness instead of truth. Um, Deceitfulness in how he handled the the whole situation with 
with Uriah. But God wants wisdom instead of folly and truth instead of deceit. And David realized, I, I can't generate that. On my own, all that comes out of me is folly and deceit. I cannot generate the truth and wisdom that you want in me. So this is his plea for mercy. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy on me because of the greatness of my sin, of, because of the fact that I can't, I can't do anything to deliver myself, because of the fact that I'm condemned and I'm overwhelmed. Won't you have mercy on me? My need is for this sin to be, to be taken away. And then we come to the cry of, of repentance. And here in verses um, 7 through 12, we find what we might call the elements of repentance. Um, in Ezekiel 36, in Philippians 3, in 2 Corinthians 5, in Romans chapters 3 through 8, we find um, God delivering to us the, the elements of salvation, which would be a, a, a clean record, a new record, uh, instead of a, a filthy record, um, a new heart instead of a stony heart, a heart of flesh, and a new life, the presence of the Spirit, instead of oozing, seeping poison coming from us. Um, here, David, who is already regenerate, he's, he's pleading for a renewal of all of these things. His, his sin has incurred a fresh guilt. His sin has developed callousness on his, albeit, new heart. And his sin has, has interfered with the work of the Spirit. So his sin has interfered with the, um, with the, the, the realities that God imparts at salvation of a, of a new record, a new heart, and a new life. So he needs a, a refreshed record. He needs a, a, cle a cleansed heart, and he needs um, the clean spirit working in his life. So the constituent, ele the elements of repentance then would be uh, begging God for, uh, for cleansing, for a clean heart, and for his clean uh, spirit. So verses 7 through 9, uh, begging God for, again, for a, a cleansed record. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop... Um, the, the sprinkling of the people with blood um, with using a hyssop plant was the mark of the initiation of God's covenant with the people. Um, I think it's Exodus 24. And so David is hearkening back to that and he's appealing to the means by which God establishes his relationship with people. It's not based on our merit. It's always based on blood. From here into eternity, that's the only basis by which God can come close to us, by which he can interact with us. It's blood. And so he says, purge me with hyssop. So it's, it's both definitively, that's how God initiates the covenant, but on an ongoing basis, that's the only basis on, upon which we can be cleansed. If you had um, a leprous house the, where, where uh, uh, this um, disease had been getting into the very fabric of, of the house, cleanse with hyssop. 
If leprosy was taking over the individual, had to be cleansed with hyssop. And, and that's our experience, isn't it? We find that that there's there's this diseasedness about us. Uh, it's it's seeping, it's festering, it's oozing, and and there's nothing we can do to to quell it, to um to to, to get rid of it. And so we need the cleansing of of hyssop. We need the the application of of blood, and um and the effect of cleansing when you know that you're legally cleansed. Uh, pronounced clean by the authority of, of God himself. There's, um, there's a hearkening here back to atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the blood of one goat comes into the holy place, the, the, and then the other goat is taken away. So, so we need to be covered, and we need that sin to be, um, to be taken away. Um, thrown behind God's back, as he says. Remembered no more. Um, and then, and then also blotted out. And the effect of that is jubilation. That's what brings about joy and gladness. That awareness of sin, that guilt, it, it, it breaks us. It disintegrates us. That's why Isaiah said, woe is me. That's why David in Psalm 32 says, uh, my wounds grow foul and fester. I think maybe it's there, maybe somewhere else. Because of my sin, I grow old. Because of my iniquities, um, I'm, I'm withering away. Um, but when, when you know that you're forgiven, you know, the, the prodigal son's father knows what to do. You throw a party. You know, it's, it, it, now it's party time. And David says, that's what I want, Lord. I, I want that, that feast in, in my soul. And the, on, the only way is through, is through the cleansing. So, so David is appealing to God for, for a cleansed uh, record. He's appealing to him for, for a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, verse 10, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. These things go together, a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. A clean heart, I'm, I'm utterly convinced, is a soft heart. Um, this is what God's talking about in, in Ezekiel. He said, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give to you a heart of flesh. And... You know, Keith Green, I don't know if you, you know Keith Green, uh, wrote the song, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Um, and uh, his testimony, when he wrote, um, or, no, there was another song, My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and that's not how I want to be, alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Wash me anew with the wine of your blood. I think Keith Green got it. Um, he gives a little testimony in conjunction with that song. He says he noticed that his heart was getting dry, it was getting calloused. He's building up calluses on his heart. And I think, I think that's what David's dealing with here. With our hearts may be new. We may have a heart of flesh, but then these, these calluses develop on our hearts. And when you're calloused, you become less responsive to God, less responsive to His Word. You know, in the Psalm 32, it says, Don't be like a horse or a mule who need a bit or a, or a, or a bridle. But if, if a horse is well-trained, that bit comes in and, and, it, and it grabs onto the soft part of their mouth and they're easily turned. 
when your when your heart is soft and clean, you hear the word of God. You're easily turned. You're responsive. But those calluses come in, and we become stubborn uh, with God Himself and with His people, and we 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 become intransigent. We um we don't break over over our sin. And so David is is asking for for a clean heart. And he's asking for for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, You know, Scripture is like a bud that blooms gradually. So we get fuller teaching on the Holy Spirit, of course, in the New Testament. But David... um, as clearly, I think, as any Old Testament saint understood the, the mission, the function, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The center of His aim in your life and mine is to make us holy. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians. You're excited about the Holy Spirit because He gives you the gift of speech or He, he um, enables you to have a certain understanding of things or... Um, or he, or he increases your, your faith, or he, um, he impels you to give. But, but Paul says, strip that all away. The center of the Holy Spirit's intention is to make you holy. And I think David, of all the Old Testament saints, he's one of the ones who, who saw this most clearly as a man after God's own heart. Now, he was anointed by, by Samuel with that horn of oil, representing the Holy Spirit. And he knew that the Holy Spirit's intention is to make him jealous for the name of God. Witness Goliath. To make him sacrificial. Witness Goliath. To to give him a heart that's willing to to not only spare the life of his enemy, but to weep genuine, real tears when they die. Who of us does that? And And to weep over his own sin. He understood the function of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and he, he was deeply grieved at the thought of the Holy Spirit departing from him as it had departed from, Paul, from, from Saul. So he says, Do not um, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David understood the life spring of the Christian is, is this joy that the Holy Spirit gives. When he says your generous spirit, I think it's the same word that's used when um, we're told about the people offering for the tabernacle. They, they gave willingly, generously, or in Psalm 110, um, your people will be willing in the day of your power. That is the idea of exuberantly volunteering, um, throwing yourself into the work of God because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So David says, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit, um, and I need this joy that he gives to be um, overflowing in me so that I can be abounding in your service. Because all of these things had been uh, squelched, had been, um, had been dimmed, had been deadened by the sin that had come into his life over the space of uh, close to a year or so. But this is what he's begging for now. Fresh cleansing, clean heart, and that clean Holy Spirit 
giving him joy and are voluntarily offering himself. That's what holiness is. Seeing myself as belonging to God, separated unto God, not belonging to myself. Which, um, which results in joy and, uh, and willingness in his service. So then in, in verses uh, 13 through 15, we find what David anticipates to be the individual effects of repentance on him as a man, as a person. Um, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. This was the experience of Peter, wasn't it? Uh, Peter sinned against the Lord. Jesus said, If you deny me, I will deny you. Um, and Peter knew that Jesus said that. And he had, he had denied Jesus, not, not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus looked at him and, and he wept. But, um, but imagine, imagine what was going on in Peter's heart. You know, Pete, I think Peter really wanted to die with Jesus. He loved him. He didn't know how weak he was. But he wanted to die with Jesus. But imagine what that did to, to Peter's heart when, when Jesus said, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He's restoring him to service. And then he goes on to say, the time will come when um, you'll be led where you do not want to go. He's telling Peter, you're going to die for me. You will have the opportunity to die for me. Um, well, Peter realizes that God restores him. And, and you know, who, who cares? Who cares if he dies? He already knows he's going to die for Jesus. So it's almost like he's going to throw himself out there on the day of Pentecost, just daring them. All right, guys, go ahead and take me. You know, less than two months before, you know, he's cowering. You know, and I, I can relate too easily to that. Scared of what people will say. And now Jesus spoke to him. He's restored after, after repenting. And he says, I dare you to take me. And he preaches. 3,000 people are converted. He repents. And transgressors. Learn his ways, sinners are converted to him. Jonathan Edwards talks about just being overwhelmed with a sense of his own sin. As a believer, and he said the, the only way that he could express the, the sense that he had of his sinfulness was to say infinite upon infinite. There's just this, this, this oozing mass of, of flesh and filth and corruption coming out of him in view of the holiness of God. But that's why he could, he could preach from, was it Deuteronomy 32 or so? Your, their foot will slide in due time. He said, you're like, a, you're like a spider hanging by one strand over the pit of hell. There is your foot. And, and it's, only, it's only the preventative grace of God that, that, that keeps you from taking your last breath, from your heart beating its last, its last beat. That's all it, it, that comes between you and hell. Because he was convicted of his own sin and repented, he was able to speak to people because he knows that's the mercy of God that gets them face to face with their sin to bring them to repentance. David understood that principle. Um, God uses people that have been broken. It's only the broken that can be healers. If you haven't been broken, 
And I think that this psalm is, is suggesting to us that that needs to be fresh. Um, it, it can't be the, the brokenness of last year or the brokenness of, of our conversion. Um, it needs to be a present condition of brokenness. That is who God will use. And, and that itself, I, I think, should put us um, just face down before God because we realize you know, God's intention in the Scriptures in that James passage is to paint us into a corner. Um, throughout the book of James, counts it all joy when you encounter various trials. I can't do that. Um, you adulterers and adulteresses. God, it's true. He wants to paint us into a corner so that we'll cry out um, and, and beg for Him to, to do something in us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I can't get rid of my double mind. It's inside me. I can't do the surgery that it takes. I can't unify my mind. I can't cleanse my heart. I can't make myself mourn. I don't feel like it. It doesn't bother me that I sin. I, I do it and I, and I go on my merry way. And it registers perhaps that it was wrong, but it, it doesn't break my heart. And so God always commands us to do what we can't do. To get us face to face with him. God, do something to me. Do something to me. Break my heart, please. Then I can be useful to you. Then sinners would be converted. That's a convincing argument to the Lord. He wants the sinners to be converted more than you do. God, break me so that I can be a conduit for broken hearts. So one effect of of repentance will be um, that others are converted through us. Another is that God will enable us to, to praise. You know, Jesus is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. You know, not just lip service. That's what the Pharisees do, the actors. And uh, how often have we slipped very far in that direction? We just... We're well taught, and so we know what to say, we know when to say it. And God says, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And David's aware of that. I imagine he was going to the temple during that year, but his heart, there was something blocking his access to the living God. And so he says, he says, deliver me from this guilt. Then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David was a singer. Um, and he knew that uh, songs come from that fellowship with God that comes from, from, from a fresh, fresh, fresh repentance. Uh, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, you open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Um, and then here in, in verses 16 and 17, we find, in a sense, I think the heart of, of the psalm, um, it's, it's kind of expanded and, ex and expressed in verses 7 to 12. When your heart is broken, then there will be these cries um, begging God um, for a clean record, a clean heart, for his clean spirit. But, um, but they all come from this place. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight 
in burnt offering. Uh, Micah says the same thing, right? What will I give to the Lord? Uh, shall I give him uh, 10,000 rivers of oil, the firstborn of my body for the fruit of my soul, the, the most lavish offering that you could think of? No. Um, he says, uh, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Um, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And here's, here's where you know God, God puts us where he wants us. And, and he says, do you have a broken heart? Do you have a contrite heart? Do you have a broken spirit? That's the sacrifice that he wants. Without that, everything else is just words. It doesn't, it doesn't carry any significance. This is what he's looking for. And so we go to God and we say, God, I don't have it. I, I don't have a broken heart. I, it's, not, it's not breaking, Lord. I read your law and it doesn't seem to have the, the proper effect. I, I can't break it myself. Do something to my heart, won't you please? I, I don't have any tears to cry. My sin doesn't bother me. Break my heart. And this is, this is the testimony of Scripture. God says, rend your hearts and not your garments. He says, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to wait for the Lord, time to seek the Lord until he comes um, to have mercy, to rain mercy upon you. Um, in one of the Puritan prayers, they say, give me perpetual brokenheartedness. And so, um, so we, we listen to the Ten Commandments. We ask God, Lord, Break up my fallow ground. We go to James, um, James 4, 6 to 10. Um, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Pur purify your hearts, you, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Not because you're not getting your way, throwing a childish temper tantrum, but be miserable and mourn and weep because you have grieved the living God. Because you have grieved the Holy Spirit. So every command of God is an impossible command. There is no command that God gives to us that is in the realm of possibility for us. And uh, that's, um, that's accentuated right here. This is where all the springs of obedience um, come from. They, they can only come from a broken heart, a perpetually broken heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And so we look around and we see um, difficulties in the church. We, we, we see a lack of prosperity in the church, a lack of protection. It doesn't seem like the walls are, are holding against the um, intrusions of the devil and, and the world. Uh, we see the, the exterior formalities of worship and business of the church, but uh, there seems to be a lack of, of life. Um, and, and what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that our, our hearts need to break. Not the other people. My heart. Your heart. That's what Daniel said. I and your people have sinned. We have sinned. I have sinned. God is looking for your 
broken heart. And in the wake of that, then we can look for these corporate effects of blessing on the church. God showing his pleasure to his people. God building the walls of Jerusalem. God being pleased with the aroma of the sacrifices. There's a woman um, who lived in Germany around the time of World War II. Her name was Basilea Schlink. She, um, she lived with a, a group of women that they called themselves the Evangelical Sisterhood of Mary. They were not Roman Catholic. Um, and she, uh, she had a burden around the time of World War II um, for the nation of Germany to repent. Um, but she realized it had to start with her, had to start with the women living in that community. And she recounts the story of, um, there were some women who were doing a simple task. I think they were loading up a cart and pushing it somewhere. And everything was going wrong. The cart just wouldn't move and, and they were trying whatever they could and everything was going wrong. And they said, God used that to get a hold of them. There was, there was ill will in them uh, towards, uh, towards, towards other, other believers. And God used circumstances to expose that, and they had to walk in the light. They had to, to repent towards the Lord. And that was the lifestyle that Basileia Schlink sought to cultivate. So I'd recommend her book, Repentance, the Joy-Filled Life. But she said that's, that's the answer. That's right at the heart, at the center of the Christian life. That's right at the heart, at the center of the Christian community. This perpetual brokenheartedness. And if, um, if we don't have broken hearts, then everything degenerates into formalities and lip service. We can't give it to ourselves. And so, so that's, that's why you know, we cry out to God. God comes to us in this passage like Nathan came to, um, came to David. You know, God is turning around and using David, broken, in, in this psalm, I believe, as a, as a vehicle to tell us, you are the man. I am the man. I have committed adultery. I've not been content with God himself and what he's given me. And I've reached out to grab for other things. And it's led to, to anger and strife and contention, dissension. I'm the man. I'm guilty of adultery. I'm guilty of murder. But, um, but God and the greatness of his love, he's, he's more willing to give me uh, a fresh record, a clean heart, and to restore his, his clean uh, and powerful Holy Spirit. To me. He's more willing to give these things to me than I am to ask. And it's not difficult for him to give us a broken heart. Uh, he's willing to do that. Um, and that's one of his mercies to us. Back to you, Mark.